Hello, and welcome to this Solus Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solaschurch.com. Uh, our text today starts in Acts chapter 1, and we're looking today again at verses 9, just through 11. Just three verses here. Let's look at this account here in Acts 1. It says, now when he, Jesus, had spoken these things, it's the things of verse 4 through 8, Jesus commanding his disciples to wait for the Spirit in Jerusalem that would come upon the church. And when he had spoken these things, we we studied this two weeks ago, while they watched, he, Jesus, was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. He must have been in Florida, really cloudy, good one, right? Anyway, verse 10 says, and while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, we studied this ascension event a couple weeks ago, Jesus parts from earth to heaven, as he went up, two men stood by them in white apparel. Uh, And the scripture tells us this, and this is what they said to the disciples. Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? Now, the ascension of Jesus must have been such a significant, mesmerizing, mind-blowing event that the disciples were so captivated by it that two angels didn't even deter their attention. Like two angels show up and they're like, yeah, cool angels. Anyway, Jesus just is, like that's how, how mesmerized they are by the ascension. But these angels, they, they, they say to the disciples, why do you stand gazing? The word gazing there means looking longingly like they've lost something. And when you study the teaching of Jesus as we looked, the disciples were actually, they weren't losing Jesus. They were actually, through his ascension, they were gaining Jesus in a greater way. His presence would would be with them in a greater way now that he would uh, leave the time-space universe at the right hand of God uh, and then activate his ministry into all the world. So they're saying, "Why why are you looking longingly like you've lost something? And then he gives them a promise. He says, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. One more time. This same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven. Here's what he tells the angels tell them. This same Jesus will so come. He's going to return in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Uh, this is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, thanks for this, this time to be together in your word. I pray now that as I seek to preach and teach what your word has to say and who you are, that you would empower me with your spirit. Would you enable me, God, to communicate your heart and your truth? Would you open up our hearts to what you want to say to us? I pray that you would be the one speaking, God, and get me out of the way so that you can speak your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, today I want to begin kind of more old-fashioned style. I've been having to find my groove here preaching to a a somewhat empty room into a camera, uh, but I'm going to revert back to my old sermon ways and start with my sermon title today. Uh, today, I want to preach from the simple title, There's More to Come. There's More to Come. Uh, this past week, Brittany and I, we got the opportunity of a lifetime. Our two kids, uh, Judah and Evie, we have three, but two of them, Judah and Evie, stayed the night at their aunt's house. Um, And for the night, we had one child, which I remember when we went from zero to one, that was really hard. But when you go from three to one, 
It's like you forget they're even there. Not in a bad way. Not like we actually forgot she was there. But oh my goodness, it was... It was such an incredible night. We were so thankful for uh, their Aunt E.E. who took the kids away. They did a little sleepover at her house, a little movie night. Uh, and Brittany and I, we put Penny down early. And for the first time in forever, we got, some of you guys are you're wondering what I'm about to say here. We watched a movie, okay? We got to actually, we were like, we get to watch a movie. Like, we get to watch a movie uninterrupted. No kids coming out saying, Mommy, I want a drink of water. Or We were like, what? And we, we got to have this moment of peace and quiet early in the evening where we could actually sit in our living room and enjoy some cinema, okay? And so we sit there and we spend a good 10 to 15 minutes scanning Netflix. Have you done that before? Where you actually are, you spend more time watching movies than actually watching a movie. You know what I mean? Like you just go through all the options. And John was like, oh, we've seen that. I'm not in the mood for that. What about this? I think we watched like eight trailers. We did that. We went over to Amazon Prime. Nothing there. We're so hard to please. And then we went to the Disney Plus channel. And we like backed out immediately. We're like, no, let's get away from there. We're there all the time with the kids. And then we found ourselves, we, we, we were set on a movie. But then we just put on the, the basic cable. We started flipping through the channels. It's been a while since I've, we've done that. And this is so funny. Like the, the, the one chance we have to actually sit down and maybe watch like an Oscar-worthy movie, we found ourselves sucked into one of those like crime story TV shows. Okay? And I mean sucked in. This thing was two hours long. And we were there on the edge of our seats the entire time, and that's what we did. We spent our, our film opportunity watching Basic Cable <laughs> and a crime show that was actually about a story right here in Boynton. Now, one of the most, it's been a while since I've watched like a TV show on TV, and this reminded me of my childhood, but one of the most frustrating parts of our first world problems, okay, with Basic Cable is these cliffhangers that happen in the story that you don't get nowadays in Netflix. The reason why it's so addictive is you could just go to the next episode. There is no more, there's no more, you know, to be continued. There's none of that. It's just like, I'm going to continue right now, like next episode. Uh, but we were, we're kind of stuck in the past, right? Like my kids know nothing of this, you know, to think about that. But this was my childhood. You, you'd watch a show and, and right at the, the moment where the plot is going to break through, where, where, um, this new piece of information is going to be revealed, boom, it's like an infomercial shows up. Oh my gosh, you know? And they cut to a commercial break. And often what you used to have on some of these crime shows is you'd have a guy like in the dark, awkwardly lit room and he'd walk up to the camera and be like, don't you change that channel, you know? There's more to come. Hang on, all right? And so we found ourselves, at every point that would happen, we would be so frustrated. Um, but we were still hanging on because, as is the title of the sermon, we believed there was more to come. And there, there really was. It was a really sad story. Anyway, there's more to come. I also find myself doing this with Judah. As I, uh, as I am trying to relive a lot of my childhood through him, uh, it, it's been sweet to show him a lot of the, my six-year-old son, uh, I've been showing him a lot of the movies I grew up on, like the classics, the Disney classics, the 90s classics. And man, so many of these movies, it's like at a second watching as an adult, they're not as awesome as I thought they were as a kid. They were everything. You watch them again, you're just like, okay, all right. You're a little bit more critical, I guess. I don't know. But even Judah, he, there, there's so many of these movies that uh, there's like, way, maybe it's like too much dialogue. And I don't know if we had a greater attention span back then. But he just, if there's not enough action and explosions, he's kind of like, yeah, this is boring. 
to have, like, like I remember it was, uh, it was a few months ago, we were watching Cool Runnings, and it was, it was interesting at first, but there comes a point in that movie where there's a lot of dialogue, and Judah's just kind of like, Dad, when's the bobsledding going to happen again, you know, like, and, and, I, and I have to tell him, like, Judah, hold on, there's more to come, there's more to come. Uh, you know, the idea of having to hang on in hope is a central theme to the New Testament, uh, certainly a central theme to the disciples. We even see the angels encouraging the disciples with this same fact, that there is more to the story than the present scene you're in. If you just hang on, your hope will be fulfilled. There's more to come. That's essentially what the angels are saying to the disciples here. Uh, he, he's, uh, the, these angels have, have, have already encouraged the disciples with where they're, what they're supposed to do, get back to work. But, but he's also, they're also reminding the disciples that this Jesus who left, he's also going to come. There's more to the story. In fact, this becomes the, the, one of the primary motivating factors of the early church. We see even the church throughout the centuries. It's not just that there's this Jesus who came and died and rose. That's certainly what propels us. But what kept the church going, even through such great persecution and hardship, was the confidence that there was more to come. That if I haven't reached Jesus yet, then I haven't reached the end of the story. I'm going to keep going. There's more to the story than the current scene that I'm in. And as the angels encourage the disciples with this same truth, they go right into the presence of God. They go back to, to Jerusalem and they begin to pray with this hope. Uh, you know, this is also true of the current scene we're in uh, with this pandemic that we've been in. I think, uh, you know, the longer you're in the same scene, it's almost like the harder it is to believe that anything can be different. When you have the same thing for so long, you start to forget what normal is like and you start to lose, lose heart. And lose hope that the best is truly yet to come. But that is the central climax of the Jesus story. Not just what he's done, but what he is still going to do. And the encouragement for us who are following him to hang on because there's more to come. Now, this um, is said here in this text, but it is also said all throughout the scriptures that the story of Jesus is going to continue. He came. He died, he lived, he died, he rose, he appeared for 40 days, he ascended to the right hand of God, he poured out his spirit on the church. The church since then has been advancing the kingdom of God throughout the whole world by the power of the spirit. Ultimately, there will be this point in the story still to come where a few things will happen. Let's look at this. What is still to come in the Jesus story? That's what we want to ask today. What is still to come in the Jesus story? And the first thing, which is probably the most obvious, and these will each build on each other, is what we see here in the text. The simple point that Jesus will return. Jesus will return return. But we see the angels saying this to the disciples here in this passage, that even just as you saw him go into heaven, he will so come in like manner. The same Jesus is the phrase they use. The same Jesus who came the first time, he's going to come again. Now, it's not the angels who are making this promise. The angels are simply reiterating 
a promise that Jesus already gave. Remember John 14, when Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm going away, and they're troubled, they're sad, but he tells them that I'm, don't be troubled, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And then John 14, 3 says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This is one of the most consistent promises of Jesus in the gospel accounts. The promise that his first coming was a prelude to a second coming. Uh, There was a lot that Jesus uh, did fulfill in his first coming that he won't fulfill at his second coming, and there's a lot that he didn't fulfill in his first coming that made the disciples wonder, like, why isn't he restoring the kingdom of Israel? Why hasn't he fulfilled these messianic prophecies that Jesus promised to fulfill again at his second coming? You know, there's hope for the second coming because of what we see at the first coming. We know Jesus came. We know he's coming again. And notice what the angels said. They said that he's going to come, notice this, in like manner as you saw him go. I think that's really interesting. That's an important detail. Uh, let, me, let me draw your attention to that again. That was verse 11 of Acts chapter 1. We, we just read this. This same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven, notice this, will so come in like manner just as you saw him go. Well, how did they see him go? Well, a few things. The first thing that we can acknowledge is that they saw Jesus go visibly. He went visibly. It wasn't some spiritual allegory, you know, like Jesus is going to spiritually come back. It's going to be mysterious and, you know, you don't want to miss it. You don't want to miss the second coming. And let's be clear about something. Nobody will miss the second coming of Jesus Christ. Just as the disciples didn't miss his ascension, they're, they're gazing at it. And the angel said, just as you, keyword, saw him go, he will so come. In other words, you will see him return. It's Revelation 1-7. Behold, Jesus is coming with the clouds bodily. Just as he ascended, he's coming physically. The same Jesus is coming. And every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. Jesus himself makes this same statement in the Gospel of Matthew. He's going to return visibly, bodily. This is as real as his first coming. Now, it's the same Jesus, but it's a Jesus who's carrying a a different state of presence or even coming with a different purpose. This is important. He came visibly riding on a donkey as a suffering servant on Palm Sunday, but at his second coming, he will come as a conquering king riding upon a horse. Every eye will see him at his second coming coming. He's coming visibly. Uh, That's the first thing we see. Now, the second thing we can acknowledge from that verse about him ascending uh, and him coming in like manner is he's going to come. We also want to acknowledge this. He's going to return suddenly. He he didn't tell the disciples, okay, guys, I'm teaching you, and now in a second, I'm going to ascend, okay? So get ready. Listen closely because I'm about to leave. Are you ready? The hour is coming. No, the Bible actually tells us that it's, uh, it was, again, it was verse 9. When he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up. So it's, it's this sort of sudden occurrence. He, it's like one, one second he's talking to them, the next second he's ascending. And same will be true of his second coming, his return. One second he's not here, and then suddenly, the Scripture uses this idea of like a thief in the night, Suddenly, he will return. 
Jesus spoke about this, uh, this idea of his sudden return, ultimately helping us understand that there's a mystery to this. There's a mystery to this. Matthew 24, 36, Jesus said, But of that day and hour no one knows, but not even the angels of, in heaven, but my Father only. No one knows the day nor the hour when Jesus is going to return. There's a mystery to it. But just because it's a mystery doesn't mean it cannot be expected. There's still an, what we would call an eminence to his return. Okay, so I firmly believe this. I firmly believe that though we don't know the day or the hour, there is presently nothing on the prophetic timeline. There is nothing holding Jesus back from right now returning. It's called his eminent return. Um, now, remember, Jesus gave some signs of his coming, right? Uh, he gave some, some uh, what he called labor pains. That, that, that's actually the phrase he uses. It's Romans 8.22, which also uses the same idea. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with, with pangs together until now. It's Matthew 24. The disciples are going, what is going to be the sign of the end of the age, the sign of your coming? And man, we can have some fun right now getting to all the different camps that believe all sorts of different things about this. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to civilly, I'm going to spend some time talking about what 98% of us agree on. Okay, Let's focus on what we agree on. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back in an hour that no one will expect, and he gave us certain signs that should serve to heighten our expectation of his return. One of the biggest mistakes that people have made with the signs of his return, earthquakes, rumors of wars, false prophets, all these different things. There's seven specific signs in Matthew 27. One of the biggest mistakes that people have made with these signs is they've, they've used them as sort of these things that limit the return of Christ. Like Jesus can't come back yet because blank hasn't happened. And that's not what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say, I'm giving you these things so that you can know, you know, uh, what I'm limited to and then when I'm free to return. He, he used them to describe, again, labor pangs, as we just read there in Romans 8. The idea is that of a contraction. And, and the idea of a contraction is when a woman is about to give birth, when there's, uh, the, the higher the intensity of that contraction and the greater frequency of that contraction, so it's happening more frequently, at a greater intensity, the sooner the coming of the child. And Jesus is saying these are signs to help you realize as you see the greater intensity of these things and you see the, the heightened frequency of these things. It's not that these things haven't happened throughout all of history. I just believe we're at a moment right now as time goes on where these things that Jesus promised, these signs are happening with greater intensity and with greater frequency. And he says, and when these things happen, lift up your heads. Your redemption draws near. They should create a heightened sense of expectancy. Now, again, they don't limit his return. Jesus' return is eminent. He can, he can come at any moment. And the simple uh, point for this is just the early church. Like you have James, for example, in James 5.8, who said to the church, you be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Uh, every Christian throughout all the centuries lived with this understanding that Jesus could return at any moment. It's probably an unhealthy thing if you don't think he, he can come back in your lifetime. You know, if... if um, 
if, if there is no sense of, of that suddenness of his return. But Jesus really pressed this. He told the disciples, I'm coming quickly. We see Peter, we see James writing to the church uh, with, this, with this reminder that the return of Jesus is at hand. It's been described this way. His footsteps, you can hear his footsteps coming down the hall. His hand is on the, you can see the doorknob like turning from the outside. Like his nearness is at hand. The Lord is, is near. And the reason for this is for us to be ready. The reason for us to know this, that he's coming eminently. He's coming sooner than we would imagine is to cause us to evaluate our lives and go, man, am I ready for his coming? We know that, that most of Israel was not ready for his first coming. But what about me now? Am I going to be ready for his second coming? Am I going to be prepared? How many parables did Jesus tell to illustrate this point? Jesus told these constant parables about a master who goes away to a far land. And he entrusts his servants for a, a period of time with specific tasks that they would one day be held accountable to. And you have these co consistent parables of, of, of these, these servants being reunited when the master returns. And the question is constantly brought up to the followers of Jesus. When the master returns, how will you be found? Will you be found faithful? Will you be found obedient? Will you be found as a good steward of the talents entrusted to you? There's the parable of the ten virgins, which describes some of them who had oil in their lamps, and they were invited into the presence of God. And then there were those who were found with no oil. That's a picture of the Holy Spirit. It's like you could have the form of church, but when Jesus comes back, he's not going to ask us, did you know how to do church well? But are you going to be found ready and this should, what this looks like is this looks like living a life of, of watchfulness and urgency. You know what I mean? Like I'm watchful. I'm, 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 I'm aware that Jesus could return at any moment and I'm living in light of that. Not because, you know, and I want to make sure I communicate this right, okay? If you're in Christ, this isn't a scare tactic, okay? Like, like if my kids are misbehaving and my mom, and, and, and mom is like, uh, Brittany is like, you know, dad can come home at any minute, you know? It's like, okay, you know? It's not a scare tactic to make us behave, but it's a question of preparedness. Jesus is coming, and when he's coming, listen, he's, if you're in Christ, the, the Bible says in 1 Peter 1 that he's not coming to judge you. If you're in Christ. We'll get to that in a second here a little bit more. But 1 Peter 1 says that as a Christian, we should be sober, we should gird up the loins of our mind and be sober and vigilant, and we should rest our hope fully on the grace that's going to be brought to us through Jesus. He's coming in grace. The idea is living in light of our hope that's coming and being, again, prepared and ready for that. I want you to see what Titus says about this. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Notice this looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. You see the idea? That's the heart. We have what Titus calls, or what Paul calls to Titus, this blessed hope. This blessed hope. One day we're going to see him. 
We're going to be like him even. We're going to see him as he is. And we live looking forward to that hope as those who are his own special people, zealous for good works. I'm challenged to ask the question, Lord, how will you find me when you return? Will you find true faith? Will you, will you find true love and joy and hope? Um, that's the first idea. This is what's still to come. Jesus will return. Now, as Jesus returns, with the return of Jesus, the second thing that's still to come is the reward of Jesus. Number two, Jesus will reward. This is still to come. He's going to return. And as he returns, it's Revelation 20, uh, it's Matthew, actually Jesus says it in two places. Matthew 16, 27 says, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each one according to his works. It's actually in the last chapter of the Bible. One of the last verses in the Bible is Jesus in red letters saying, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to everyone according to his work. Now, when we use the word reward, and it's a hard word to say. I always confuse it with award, award, reward. And then there's like, isn't there like award? Like, oh, anyway, all right, but when we use the word reward, we often think of it in a positive sense, okay? Like you, you found, you know, you, you brought the criminal dead or alive and you get a reward, all right? Or you, um, you did something right and, and, you, and you're, 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 um, you're compensated for it uh, in a positive sense. But in Scripture, the word reward, and even grammatically, the word reward can have both positive and negative instances. Uh, there's an example of this. It's in, in Psalm 28, where, for example, David says, give them according to their deeds. This is what David was longing for. And according to the wickedness of their endeavors, give them according to the work of their hands. Render, that word in Hebrew can also be translated, reward them with what they deserve. So uh, you're either rewarded with blessing or you're rewarded with judgment. And this is what we see uh, Jesus meaning. Again, when he says this, I'm coming quickly, my reward is with me. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 25 of the sheep and the goats where all of human his- every person in human history is going to be divided up. And uh, they are going to be rewarded. Uh, the righteous will be rewarded with blessing. And the unbelieving, the wicked, will be rewarded with judgment. And even David here in Psalm 28 uh, is calling, by the way, we want God to be this just rewarder. He wouldn't be good. Um, Evil would prosper. God wouldn't win if he wasn't just. Uh, Because God is just, David has within his heart this longing for God to reward the wicked. Uh, in fact, um, this is an event that occurs, that will occur, that, a time, that it's going to come when Jesus returns. Uh, God will render to each one according to what he's done. It's, it's an event known as the great white throne judgment. After Christ has returned, and you, if you read Revelation 19, it's one of the most glorious, majestic, powerful, terrifying events Um, in the Bible where Jesus does return. One of the greatest visuals of it is in the movie The Return of the King by the Lord of the Rings. You see this scene where they're just like, the horses are just scaling down a mountain, this beautiful uh, picture of Christ. Uh, But following the return of Christ, 
depending on what you, how you understand the millennium, regardless, here's what we know it's going to happen. Satan is going to be cast into the lake of fire. He's going to be judged. He's going to be, he's going to be uh, condemned into this lake of fire in which he will be tormented day and night, as well as the, this creature known as the beast and this false prophet. And then as you continue in the story of, of this, this judgment, Revelation 22, uh, 20, you, you see this, idea, uh, this vision that John has. He says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven uh, had fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. So this is a future event that John sees as something that almost already happened. That's how sure it is. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. Uh, this is also called the Lamb's Book of Life. Those who have uh, been forgiven and been declared righteous through their faith and trust in Jesus are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. This is a book of the blood of the Lamb that was even written before the foundations of the world, Revelation says. But there's another book. Uh, in which uh, the dead are judged according to their works by which the things which are written in the books. Hold on. That's scary. That's terrifying. That's sobering. It's also hopeful. Um, This idea, it's it's Romans 2. I think I actually have the reference. Do I have the reference? No, I don't. (laughs) Okay, next time. All right, but Romans 2 is where the Bible says that that God will judge even the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. We we tend to look at history and, and, you know, come on, we know that even with every bad guy that's been caught, even criminal, every criminal that's been been punished, we know that there is an equal amount of those that have gotten away with murder. Maybe in your life there's people that have sinned against you in a way that you've you can't even begin to articulate. And um, there's this feeling like we can get away with, with it if we trick man. But how sobering is it to know that there's actually a book in heaven where even the secret deeds of men are logged? Um, my book, is, I imagine, is rather large. Um, I'm sure you could feel the same way. I'm sure there's pages in that book that you don't ever... The fact that you know it's out there, it's just, it's like, there's a lot of feelings that that could provoke. And, and the idea is that all, at the end of the day, there is none righteous, right? No, not one. We know that, that there's, there's a sense of guilt here. The question is, which book at the end of time will you be in? Will, will you put your faith and trust in Jesus and have all of your sins in that book be erased forever because you've received the gift of his righteousness and your name is written in the Lamb's book of life? Or will you receive the reward of your sin, which is just judgment? It says that they're, 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 the dead were judged according to their works. Notice this, both small and great were, were brought out of death. That's what it says there. The, the greatest celebrity, no matter who you are, what you've done, the greatest, even religious people. The Bible says that, that, that there's going to be many that come to Jesus in the last day, on this day, and say, well, I've done this for you, I've done that for you, I've done this for you. He's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. There'll be so many religions represented here at this great white throne judgment. There'll be so many denominations of Christians represented here. Pastors. Servants, missionaries, like who knows? Jesus made it kind of heavy. This understanding that The true faith is the only thing that could save us, our trust in Jesus. Self-righteousness won't get us through this judgment. 
There's no good thing that can erase all the bad things we've done unless it's Jesus that we're trusting in. And this is what it goes on to say. It says that the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to their work. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. It says this is the second death, and anyone not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Okay? This is Jesus who is the presiding judge over this on this throne, at this judgment. Uh, Jesus himself said the Father has, ex- has given the, the Son all authority to execute judgment. And, and this Jesus, this is the same Jesus who we, we tend to uh, sort of uh, look down on as sort of like the weak lamb who gave his life is also the lion of the tribe of Judah. God is both loving and holy. He is both gracious and just who will by no means clear the guilty without a sacrifice for sin. And we see the reward for sin is coming. Now, um, it's interesting, David's the one going, God, reward them for their sin. But I would always read that and go, what about you, David? It's really easy to kind of say those things, like, God, judge them for their sin. Um, uh, It's easy to say that when you're not mindful of your own sin, right? It's something that happens when you stand before God and you see all of your sin that you're like, God, please don't reward me for my sin. And this is the good news of the gospel. The gospel is this, that you don't have to be rewarded for your bad works. You can be rewarded for God's good works through Jesus. You can be rewarded through the sacrifice of Jesus. And that's what it means to be a Christian, is that you've been saved and that you don't have to stand before God at this white throne judgment. Now, there's another judgment that Christians will stand before. Uh, we see that laid out more in 1 Corinthians 3 and in the book of Romans that it is just where we are, where our, our, our false motives are burned away. It's not a matter of salvation or not. Um, but there's, uh, for the Christian, there is this other kind of reward. You know, Jesus spoke to his followers often about living for their heavenly reward, right? Living for, um, living for the praise of the Father, not the praise of man. He, he would tell them things like, don't do your charitable deeds before man. You're going to have your reward from them, but, but lay up your treasures in heaven. We're going to look next week in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said to those that are persecuted, blessed are you for great is your reward in heaven. Um, and this is also hopeful for us that are in Christ. This is why the, the, the return of Christ is our hope. Because there's real substance to our hope. We're going to be richly rewarded. For those that are in Christ, we're not going to be rewarded with judgment. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But we're going to be rewarded with blessing for, for, for all of our labor for Christ. What, a, what an incredible thing to live for. This real substantial, you know, we're going to cash in on our spiritual investment here, okay? We're going to, we're going to, we're going to reap what we sow here. Even if in this lifetime we don't, we will in heaven. In fact, uh, the Bible tells us about Moses when Moses was in Egypt. I love this verse of Moses. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He refused to just become another person of the world, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. It says this, for he looked to the reward. You see, we live in light of that. It's amazing. When you're living in light of your, your eternal reward, your heavenly reward, you're, you're going to look different. You're going to think different. You're going to talk different. You're going to, like Moses, you're going to see the riches of, the wor- of this world differently as something that can't even compare to the riches of heaven. I want to just close with this point to say, ultimately, 
It's God who said to, Moses, to Abraham, notice this in Genesis 15:1, Abraham, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. I love that. I mean, Abraham's the most blessed man in all of history. He's the man of blessing. He's the man that God said, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. And in all of his reward that God gave him, I love that God said to him, ultimately, I'm your reward. And that truly is our hope, that when Jesus comes, we will be rewarded by him and through him and with his very presence. And then lastly, uh, we'll close out with this last point, this idea that Jesus will renew. After Jesus' return, he will reward the righteous and the wicked. There's so many other finer details and events that go into this, but this is what we all would agree upon, that Jesus is going to return. He's going to reward the righteous with blessing, the wicked with judgment, and then at the end of the book of Revelation, you have this great hope of the renewal of all things. John says, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. It says, then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I love this. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. This is our hopeful future. And he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, no crying. There shall be no, no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Here's where we close. And he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Uh, there's more to come. Uh, there's a day coming where Jesus will renew all things the hope of renewal. We know that God created a world that was without spot or blemish, was a place of blessing because as we see here in the text, just like the new heavens and new earth, it was a place where Jesus was enthroned in his proper place. And ever since God was dethroned from that place and sin entered this world, we have all sorts of things listed there like death and sorrow and pain and crying. Jesus came into the world, he entered this world, took upon himself all of those things so that he could make right what was wrong, our relationship with God. And he's the first fruits of that, his resurrection. It's the first fruits of this real hope, this material hope that we have. Um, I think this is important for us to remember that when we talk about the hope of what Jesus gives, it's not just this sort of by, by pie in the sky, angels on harp sort of ethereal idea. We're talking about a real renewed material hope that's coming. I love how it says there that this new heavens and new earth, it was coming down from heaven. Like for, forever, I feel like growing up in the church, my understanding of eternal life was that I was going to get out of this physical place and then go be disembodied somewhere, you know, in heaven, kind of floating around. But remember Jesus and his glorified body with which we will be united. We'll have our own new resurrected glorified bodies. Remember Jesus with the disciples eating a piece of fish. And the disciples going, I don't think he's a ghost. He's eating. And Jesus is like, no, I'm not a ghost. Has a go Does a ghost have flesh and, flesh and bone like this? The material nature of our hope. Peter says that through the resurrection of Jesus, we have a living hope. Uh, when John was writing the book of Revelation, I know we tend to look at the book of Revelation as this book of signs and symbols, and, and a lot of it is that. But John was writing to first century Christians that were experiencing trial that most of us will likely never experience. 
being ripped away from our families, persecuted. This was the first large-scale, widespread persecution that the church had ever seen under the emperor Domitian. And what is the hope that John gives, or that John is given to give the church? Not one day that you'll escape this broken world, but that one day God is going to renew this broken world. He's going to make all things new. You can hope there's more to come. Whatever effect this trial has had on you, or whatever effect your present trial is having on you, the longer you live in this world, you'll see that most of life is just one big trial. And what we know as Christians is we know that that though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, this is not the end of the story. Jesus continues. His story continues. There's more to come. His return is coming. With his return, his reward is coming. To deal with Satan, the adversary, once and for all. To justly judge and remove evil. To reward those who are in him. We can live in light of that. Ultimately with this hope as, as evil is eradicated and exiled into and quarantined even into the lake of fire, we have this hope of a new heaven and a new earth, Second Peter says, in which righteousness dwells. Let's be ready for this hope. Let's know that there's more to the story than what we're going through, through the scene that we're in, and we can cling tightly to the fact that Jesus is going to come just as we saw him go. Let's worship him in light of that truth. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.